0: Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, I'm Dr. Jonathan Abel and I'm here today with Associate Professor Dr. Brian Steed, welcome. Thank you, nice to be here. Uh, So let's go ahead and start by talking about your background. Tell us about your military career.
1: Uh, So I have a really weird career. Uh, It's sort of, uh, I served for about-ish 30 years, so you can break it in thirds. Uh, A third of it I was an armor officer and a third of it I was a professional military educator and a third of it, I was a Middle East foreign area officer. Uh, so I did the whole CAV armor thing. It was in a division cavalry squadron. I was a troop commander in the opposing force at the National Training Center at Fort Irwin, California. Uh, and, then I, and then that sort of crossed over because I taught at the armor school Uh, both lieutenants and captains. So my professional military education experience, I've taught every rank from cadet through majors. Uh, Taught cadets uh, at Norwich University, which is not where I got my undergraduate degree from. Uh, So I taught cadets there, and then I taught lieutenants and captains at the armor school, and then now I teach majors here. And so, I taught here. I ended my uniform service teaching here for about five years, and uh, my Middle East experience was also, I guess, technically reconnaissance, but that's kind of a stretch. Uh, so I did. Uh, l- we lived in Jordan, Israel, and then I uh, deployed to Iraq for a full year, and then UAE, all back to back to back, and. Um, When I was in Jordan, I was uh, uh, a military professional, no wait, military personnel exchange program participant, MPEP is, anyway, so uh, I was an exchange officer. So I was in the Jordanian army. My boss was a Jordanian Lieutenant Colonel, uh, and I was in the electronic reconnaissance battalion. So we did uh, monitoring of the Jordanian frontier border, which was just, absolutely fabulous. So I literally got to drive, walk, and or fly every kilometer of the Jordanian border, which was uh, kind of fun, had my Lawrence of Arabia moments, so (laughs) I I loved it. It was great. Oh, very good. Um, And Now tell us about your
0: uh, civilian academic side. Uh,
1: So my baccalaureate is in history from uh, Brigham Young University, and that's where my connection with history sort of ends officially because my master's degree I earned while I was at Norwich University but it was then from the Vermont College of Norwich University which no longer exists Uh, but it was in international relations Uh, it was kind of a weird degree because it was one of these self-designed things Uh, anyway but as much as I will call it a weird degree it ended up doing everything I wanted it to do so I got my first book published as a result of it was that thesis that was then rewritten into a book. And so it, and it got me into my Ph.D. program and it got me a job here. So I, I can't complain about it. And then my Ph.D. is from uh, the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And it is an interdisciplinary degree, which I think Means that I don't do either discipline well. So it's in political science is the lead discipline, and then history is the, I don't know, the supporting, I can't remember what the proper term <laughs> is, but I guess in military sense you'd have a lead in the trail, but I, I think they would be offended by that. But uh, so it's kind of weird uh, that way. Like my whole career at every aspect is odd. I think it's just safe.
0: <laughs> well, it's certainly something to dive into in a bit. Um, before we do that, so in addition to the the core in AOC, what else do you do and what else do you teach here at CGSC?
1: So uh, I am currently the course author for the Evolution of Military Thought, which is the preparatory theory class for... Uh, the School of Advanced Military Studies or SAMS, which is, I, I love that course, but that's not, I don't know, I guess I want to be a military theorist when I grow up, so I guess that is sort of my jam in a way, so it's it's something I like for that reason, but everything else I teach is Middle East oriented, so uh, I have a class on, uh, so when I first arrived here, we had. There was only one Middle East class, which isn't very old, and I'm I'm assuming you've talked to Lou DeMarco before, but Lou had created that class, and I can't remember what year, but it, maybe 2009. Like it isn't, it wasn't very old. I showed up in 2013, and and that was the only class we had on military history, and it was sort of oriented on Arab-Israeli wars stuff, and um, and so we tried to expand. Uh, Classes because it was called Roots of Conflict in the Middle East. And I'm like, oh, well, a lot of this goes beyond that. So I created a Deep Roots of Conflict class, which was then stolen from me by John Hostler. And so I don't teach that one anymore. But then uh, I've done, we have two ones on uh, the global war on terrorism. So one's on ideological aspects of it, how that's changed over time uh, to get, and that one goes quite a bit, like to the beginning parts of Islam all the way. To the present. Uh, and then the other one was a class that uh, is relatively new. It's only been done once so far. And uh, that was on, it's actually on the operational global war on terrorism. So we focused almost exclusively on Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay,
0: um, let's dive into some of the details of what you've done. Uh, and, and in addition to teaching, you also are a team leader. So how does that work with teaching? How do you balance those?
1: Uh, Probably by being a very bad team leader, I think is probably true. Um, Yeah, so uh, what a team leader is, is uh, I have responsibility for 12 instructors. Usually I'm one of the 12, I actually have an extra guy right now, but uh, and that's across five different departments. So there's four tactics instructors, four uh, joint and it's Department of Joint Internet, wait, no, Interagency Multinational Operations, did JMO, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. And so I've got four of those guys. I've got two logistics guys. It's the Department of Sustainment and Force Management. So they do sustainment, multifunction logistics stuff, but they also do force management and force design instruction. And then there's a leadership instructor. Uh, so ideally, I. Have some management organizational responsibility uh, in terms of uh, integrating the curriculum so that folks understand what everybody else is teaching, that kind of thing. But also there's some supervisory aspects uh, in terms of watching how other people teach and providing feedback and that kind of thing.
0: Okay. Um, you, you study a, a range of topics and subjects, and, and you as you mentioned, you kind of have a foot both in the, the IR, political science world, and also what may be called contemporary history, um, looking at the global war on terror. So how do you mesh those disciplines in your research and in your uh, teaching?
1: Okay. Man, really good questions. Uh, so I snell I, I snell. I sell my own uh, somewhat unique brand of snake oil that uh, I refer to as Narrative War, which kind of combines all uh, three. And what also makes teaching here really useful, uh, but is appreciating, understanding how narrative, which is not just story or like how, if, if you're listening to the news, how they talk about narrative, it's actually, uh, it's how you make Or how you interpret the world uh, is your narrative Uh, and so i talk a lot about and write a lot about uh, how narrative war functions so my argument would be that in the 21st century narrative war is the dominant philosophy of war for lack of a better term Uh, what we see with how china interacts with the world with how russia in part uh, of what they're doing in Ukraine is very much a nar- there's a narrative component to it, uh, maybe to a degree a dominant component. We'll see how much it's just flat out attrition warfare, uh, but so the and in part I came up with this understanding as I was in particular while well, dealing with Al Qaeda, dealing with Hezbollah when I lived in the Middle East and was interacting with those organizations. And then later as ISIS came around, ISIS was, I think, probably the single best example of how this functions. So uh, it's useful to recognize that it's not a new thing, which is what's fun about teaching here where we're teaching stuff. Uh, You can see the narrative component in the Napoleonic age. You can see the narrative component uh, in World War II. I would argue that that's America's largest investment in narrative war. Is during World War II. Uh, so it's not new, but uh, social media and other uh, aspects of technology have made it more uh, powerful, I guess, uh, more influential in, in being a determinant. Uh, I, I love talking about World War II. I also love movies. So one of the electives I hoped to teach someday is, is a, a, a film Elective here, and uh, particularly understanding how film influences World War II and then later wars as well. But World War II is the first major war, while the film industry is actually pretty uh, influential mm-hmm. in American psyche and well, and, and global as well. And it's just fascinating seeing how that use uh, shapes a national narrative for America in that war and. Mm-hmm. Uh, both before,
0: during, and after. Yeah, and we have some of the same with Vietnam where a, a large part of America's cultural memory of Vietnam comes from movies.
1: Yeah, yeah and so uh, the after part, that, that memory, how we understand is very much influenced by popular media like film and television and uh, now of course social media and, and all the variety of short videos and so forth that like that's how people understand what happened. And mm-hmm. how we interpret it, but also how we interpret the events as they occur. Uh, what we believe, what we don't believe. Early in the Ukraine war, there was the story of, uh, oh, was it the ghost of Kyiv, Yes. Mm-hmm. Right, which is all uh, all the imagery was derived from a uh, an, a, a computer game or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and much of it is just untrue. Right, like there might be some factual ev- elements, but and and the events of Snake Island is another thing that that most of those uh, events, the quotes, the things associated to that with, uh, uh, were untrue. However, how you interpret that is driven by what your narrative is if you were inclined to see the russian invasion as something evil whatever like you were cheering for the ghost of kiev even after people realized that it was fake they were still cheering for it because conceptually they liked the idea so it's it's it shapes both uh it absolutely shapes memory of events but it also shapes current interpretations and it's it's really fascinating and so much of this is coming out now as as we understand social media and how it both shapes and to a degree maybe even perverts our thinking about various issues um it's it's uh it's a fascinating field and and so uh, i really enjoy that and uh, i don't know for me it kind of ties everything together so i wrap everything into narrative war that's that's why i refer to it as a snake oil because it can cure everything
0: so right uh, so, kind of on the same line, in, in an army that has shifted in a, in a you know, country that has shifted from global war on terror to uh, multi domain operations, large scale combat operations, symmetrical conventional war, um, what's the role for a, an insurgency, counterinsurgency specialist, and
1: the lessons
0: of those kinds of wars?
1: So large-scale combat operations are what I refer to as the John McClane ability. So I can't, I can't remember if he says it in the first Die Hard movie or not, but it's basically I'm going to come in and I'm going to throw you out of your own party, right? Like that, that is what large-scale combat operations allow you to do. Uh, and if you're really good at it and if the rest of the globe perceives that you're good at it, Then nobody will fight you that way. Uh, My argument to the students is you need to be good at LISCO because you have to be. That's the existential fight. That's what protects your country. That's what allows it to exist. And it's what allows other countries to actually be intimidated when you threaten to come in and throw them out of their own party. But. If you are dominant in that, if you are competent in that, then by definition, you're never going to fight that. Uh, I would argue part of what Vladimir Putin totally misread in February, well, probably January of 2022, before he made the decision to go in, was he misread the Ukrainian narrative. He thought that they were weak and they were going to collapse. So he believed that he could go in and throw them out of their own party just by showing up in in Kyiv. And if he did that, then uh, the Ukrainian government was gonna run away, and he was gonna be able to do what he wanted to do. That hasn't worked. Like, he misread the narrative. Uh, Now, my subsequent argument is we've misread the Russian narrative. The Russian narrative has been one of enduring tremendous suffering and pain for, I don't know, a couple centuries now. and. Uh, I don't—I I think there is a story—well, there is a narrative that allows Putin to use a story to solve for the dissonance that this, as as we in the West describe it, this failed campaign, uh, because he can use a story uh, that connects the Russian people back to World War II and mm-hmm. and so forth. So I, I think that that is important to recognize in this whole LISCO environment. but most of the rest of the world is not going to misread things as badly. And so they are going to try to do things in some other way, which we often characterize as insurgency or something else. So therefore, even if we're training to do this large-scale combat operations, multi-domain operations, we still have to understand how and be competent in some other form of war, whether that's counterinsurgency or whatever. And uh, we don't do a particularly good job of understanding what happened. One of the worst things that could have happened, uh, in fact happened in the four months between uh, our withdrawal from Afghanistan and uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Because our withdrawal from Afghanistan gave the military an existential moment where we should have been able to step back, go, that did not go well, and then really, really analyze it and understand it. Uh, But instead of doing that, Russia invaded Ukraine, and very, very quickly, everybody has pivoted to point out that, uh, at least according to most Americans, that everything that Russia has done poorly are things we do well. So it's sort of doubled down on our own doctrine, and I I think that uh, we need to understand better what did or did not happen properly in Afghanistan, uh, or, as the famous saying goes, we'll be forced to repeat those mistakes, or something like that.
0: (laughs) And forced to repeat Santayana quotes, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he, yeah, I've read his quote more often than any other human beings quote. I think because mm-hmm. everybody likes using that line. And
0: yep. Anyway, none yep. there's truth to it. So well, this has been a fascinating discussion, Dr. Steed. Thank you. You're welcome. Please be sure to check out our other podcast, "A Confused Heap of Facts," where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.